If you're over the age of 40, there's a pretty good chance you've been listening to some jazz, but younger generations are spending much of their music listening time on YouTube, watching music videos, and there's a good chance they've never heard music like this. No one talking all by myself. No one walking all by me on the Armstrong's 1929 recording of Ain't Misbehavin'. Joining us to talk about jazz music, musicians, and how to introduce young adults to this American art form is Mick Carlin. Good morning. Good morning, Mindy. Uh, you're also uh, a school teacher? Yes. I and taught for 19 years at Barnstable High, and right now I'm in my 10th year at Barnstable Intermediate School. All right. So you're a lover of jazz, and, and of course you want to share this love with the kids, many of whom have never been exposed to it before. So In your view, what makes jazz so important that you've got to share it with these kids? Interesting question. Wynton Marsalis compares jazz to democracy. The idea that in a democracy you have people from all different backgrounds, all being individuals, and yet they all have to kind of coalesce to get along with each other and contribute to the democracy. It's the same thing in jazz. You have musicians who each get a chance to say his or her own piece in the solo, and yet they have to be able to relate to the whole band and be able to contribute to the whole band. So in jazz, you're able to express your own beliefs, your own opinions, and yet you still have to be able to get along with Mm. everybody else, just Mm. like in a democracy. Yeah, interesting. Now, um, as a teacher in the Barnesville School District, you have been playing jazz music for your students every Friday. Mm. So how long have you been doing this, and and what are the reactions um, of the students when they're hearing this for the first time? Well, I know I look 25, (laughs) but I've actually been teaching since 1984. And on Fridays, we always have vocabulary quizzes. So what I'll do is I'll play a piece of music, no more than five minutes, and I'll explain it, and the kids just get to close their eyes and listen, which is rare in public schools today with all the high-stakes testing, just Mm -hmm. a chance to relax and listen. And then I'll play the tune again while they're taking the vocabulary quiz. So that way they get to hear it a second time. Now, I'm not saying every single student automatically becomes a jazz fanatic, but after a couple of weeks of this, I have students saying, "Um, what would you recommend? What should I download? Back in the old days of dinosaurs, they said, you know, what CD should I buy? What album should I buy? (laughs) Now it's what should I download? So I find I don't have to do that much. All I have to do is play the music and the music does the rest. You sort of open the door for them. Exactly. Wow. So how did this idea uh, come about to write a novel for young adults centered around jazz? Now too. (laughs) When I was a high school teacher, um, once a week I had a very challenging duty. I sat at a desk in front of a boys room and I checked passes as the boys went in and out. I also graded papers. Well, one afternoon, um, I was all done grading my papers and, you know, wasn't too exciting watching the boys go in and out of the restroom. And I just thought, "Eh, 
try writing something. So I wrote the first page of the Duke story, and it just kind of went from there. I figured I know a lot about um, jazz. I'm almost like a rain man when it comes to (laughs) jazz facts, and I enjoy writing. So I just thought to myself, why not combine the two? Right. Now, your first book was Riding on Duke's Train, Mm. set in 1939. It follows a young boy named Danny who's left alone after a family tragedy. He jumps on, on the first train he sees to move on to another stage of his life. He ends up in the train of Duke Ellington and his band. The story has its basis basis in sad fact. Ellington and his men did hire trains for eating and sleeping to avoid American racial segregation. Exactly. So everybody in this story, the musicians are all real people. These are You're writing about these real people, and kind of the fiction is this young boy, Danny, who kind of drops into their lives. Right. D- Danny is a made-up fictional character. In Duke's Train, for example, um, Rabbit was the nickname of the great Ellington alto saxophonist Johnny Hodges. And Johnny Hodges, when you got to know him, he definitely had a barrier there, and he was a man of few words. But when you did get to know him, he was a very warm-hearted, kind person. So you take what you know about these real musicians, and you kind of blow it up into fiction. Mm -hmm. For example, Rex Stewart, um, who's a major character in Duke's Train, was an amazing writer. His book, Jazz Masters of the 30s, I think is required reading for anyone interested in this uh, music. So in the novel, the character of Rex, is always jotting down ideas and um, written portraits of his musical friends in a calfskin notebook. And of course, there's Ivy, the singer. Ivy Anderson. And Ivy takes a little liking to Danny. Yeah, I think in a very big sisterly kind of way. Danny kind of wishes it was more, but he realizes he's only a boy and she's a grown woman. Um, Ivy Anderson was an amazing, amazing singer. She was the woman who really uh, popularized Stormy Weather in the Mm -hmm. 30s, even though Duke didn't write it. Um, They did a cover version. She was an amazing poker player. She would clean up. Because these people, you know, if you you would read, but you also had to kill time on these long train rides. Duke would do, you know, one-nighters, Chicago one night, Fargo, North uh, Dakota the next night. So to kill time, they'd play poker. And she was the poker master. So I tried to throw that in, too. Right. Now, one of the interesting things about Duke Ellington after reading riding on Duke's train is how much time he spent composing Mm. music. It's almost as if his brain couldn't stop. He would play a gig, and while the other band members would unwind or sleep, he would stay up for hours composing. Duke was a night creature, and um, he said for years he barely ever saw the sun come up or noon. And he composed music the way I compose breath, Mm. constantly. He just had this burning creative urge inside of him. I put this in the book that, and this is true, Duke Ellington was um, dying of cancer in a Harlem hospital in the spring of 1974. And what does he have his doctors do but put an electric piano across his lap? He was composing music almost until his last hours. Mm. He just had this burning desire to be creative. And I want to say, we're going to get to the the second book in a few minutes, but both of these books, it's more than just about the jazz and the musicians. You're you're teaching the kids some lessons, some some history. There's Mm. a lot of history in these books. Yep. I'm trying to throw that in. Um, Duke's band did get held up in Hamburg, Germany in the spring of 39. You know, World mm-hmm. War II was about to start on the 1st of September 39, and they did get harassed by uh, the Nazi Gestapo. Uh, they didn't leave the train. The mm-hmm. re- Duke's real men were bright enough to know, no, let's go, stay on let's the train. Leave the train. I was like, what are you thinking yet? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I have my characters leave yeah. the train in right. search of a hamburger. Makes sense. You're in Hamburg, Germany. <laughs> there must be great hamburgers. But yes, I, what I want to get across, too, is the dignified 
incredibly brave way these artists dealt with racism, mm-hmm. something they had to face almost on a daily basis in the America of back then. Right. And we have a little Daniel who's never been out of Georgia, yeah. who is really seeing a, a whole new world mm-hmm. and, and what great role models he has to, to sort of help him and guide him through that. I wanted Danny to be an observer. I tried to remember what I was like as a 10-year-old boy. And if I had been put in that situation, I just would have had my eyes and ears mm-hmm. wide open and uh, been listening and seeing everything that I was experiencing. So this is a boy, as you said, from the backwoods of Georgia who suddenly is in New York City and then later on, London, Paris, Mm -hmm. Nazi Germany. Um, He gets quite an education. We're going to play a little bit of Duke Ellington's piece he composed while in Europe called Serenade to Sweden. Duke's writing this piece in one night and then introducing it to his band the next day so they could play it at that evening's Mm. performance. Was this typical of how he composed and introduced music to his band? Did this really happen? Yes. Duke kept a band on the road for almost 50 years. People like the journalist Nat Hentoff would ask him, Duke, you have enough money from all your royalties. Why don't you retire? And Duke would say, retire to what? He loved to hear his latest piece of music played back to him within hours of recording it. And he, I'm sorry, of composing it. And he would say, um, these so-called classical composers might compose a piece of music, not hear it played for months, even years. He said, I have the luxury of having my expensive gentleman. That's what Mm -hmm. he called his band. And he said, I can compose a piece of music three, four in the morning. And by, you know, three, four in the afternoon, 12 hours later, I can hear it played back to me. And that's the reason why he was a road dog. Mm -hmm. So he could hear his music played back. That's another thing we really get a, a taste of is what life on the road is like. Mm. And it's not really, uh, not everybody (laughs) does well under those conditions. But it really is an eye opener too and what their lives were like. Uh, And, uh, you know, as you say, Duke and his band, Danny does learn to play a little bit of an instrument, but Duke's band is pretty uh, talented and not everybody can play at that level. You have to be the best of the best. And Mm -hmm. I felt it would have been rather phony if I had the boy reach the heights, pick up a trumpet, and within years he's good enough to play with these men. Um, You know, you had to Not realistic, yeah. It's like picking up baseball and thinking you're going to play for the Red Sox within a couple (laughs) of years. These were supreme artists. And again, they were treated um, like third-class citizens Mm -hmm. in their own country. Duke had been famous for over 30 years by 1955 when he was in Chicago he went into a store to buy a pack of Wrigley's gum and the girl behind the counter said "Uh, we don't sell things to um, black people in this store and Duke walked out and he said to one of his friends he said I'm world famous and I can't buy a stick of gum in my own country Mm, it's crazy isn't it and they were treated so differently in Europe Yes, in Europe, um, I'm not saying life was a bed of roses in Europe, but so many jazz musicians like um, Dexter Gordon, Johnny Griffin, uh, the great drummer Kenny Clark, they moved to Paris or Stockholm, Sweden or Copenhagen, Denmark, because they were treated like the great artists they were in Mm, these countries. Your latest book, Travels with uh, Lewis, is set in the 1960s. This is a time um, our young protagonist doesn't just travel with with Louis, but receives trumpet lessons. We're talking Mm. Louis 
Armstrong here. Um, is there evidence that, that he took young musicians, as the characters in your stories, under his wing? Well, Lewis lived in a working-class neighborhood in Corona, Queens, and his house, the Lewis Armstrong House Museum, is now one of the most visited museums in New York City. I recommend anyone who's in New York City to go visit. It wasn't damaged, luckily, by Sandy. And Louis would be told by friends, you're a millionaire. Go buy a mansion on Long Island. But he loved his neighborhood. He loved his barbershop. He loved the kids in the neighborhood. Despite being married four times, Louis never had children. And um, he did give lessons to the kids. He bought them ice cream. The local kids called him Uncle Louis. So, yes, Louis was somebody who loved children and tried to help them any way he could. Yeah. And so in, in the period you set the book, uh, Louis Armstrong is a well-known musician around the world, a celebrity, mm-hmm. as he was. Um, but you portray him as, as you're saying, this sort of down-to-earth, approachable, and warm to everyone. Yep. Um, talk a little bit about your research into the personalities of, of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. You, you had some insight here into people who actually knew them. Yes, I know um, people who knew these musicians. So, of course, I've been picking their brains as along with, you know, reading books on these great artists for over 30 years now. For example, Louis Armstrong. Um, We're lucky to have one of his dearest friends, Jack Bradley, living in Harwich on Cape Cod. And Jack, for over 20 years, was Louis's road manager and photographer. In fact, Louis called, um, well, he preferred to be called Louis. Louis called Jack his white son. And Jack is very, very, very almost religious about Louis Armstrong. And when I showed him a rough draft of this manuscript, he said, I'm going to call you a beep, beep to your face if you've written one phony word about Pops. Mm -hmm. His friends called him Pops, Mm -hmm. and then he would call you Pops right Mm -hmm. back. Satchmo was more of a, um out-in-the-general-public nickname. And after Jack read it, Jack's a salty old Cape Codder. I was nervous. <laughs> and he said to me, you've captured my friend. He oh. said, um, this is the way it was to hang out with them. How did you do compliment. it? And I said, it was talking to you, Jack, along yeah. with listening to Lewis's interviews, reading about him. Louis Armstrong was a great writer as well. Yeah. Um, he wrote two autobiographies. He always traveled with a... Um, typewriter. He was always writing single-space type letters to people he had just met. One quick story. People who knew Louis, the one word keeps coming up over and over again, natural. Mm. He was just a natural human being who made you feel instantly at ease. Jack met him, um, I guess, through uh, the services of a former girlfriend. And Jack met him at Louis's house. And Jack said he was trembling. He was so nervous. And Lewis put his hand on Jack's shoulder and he said, I'm just a guy. And after that, Jack said the nerves just faded Mm -hmm. away. And after that, they were friends. Um, Jack tells me that on the first of every month, a stack of envelopes would go out. And what it was, inside every envelope was a check to cover the rent or the mortgage or the groceries for friends or the widows of friends who had just never made it. Lewis was legendarily generous. Mm -hmm. And Louis's manager, Joe Glazer, wanted Lewis to have press conferences and announce, I'm charitable. I support all these people every month. Lewis said, nope, it's between me, my friends, and God. Mm. So he was a very generous man without, um, you know, trumpeting it, no pun intended. uh, (laughs) Well, you know, as you're reading it, too, you really do get a sense of him because, you know, he had that great laugh that, (laughs) and you put that in there. He was always laughing. So we we hear, we can, you know, envision that laugh as as we're reading along. We talked about you sort of giving an introduction or history lesson to kids as they're reading this. So how do you weave the history of that era into the story uh, about jazz? 
I think what you do is you read so much about these musicians and you listen to them, you listen to their interviews, um, you read their own writing, that it becomes natural. It isn't, um, okay, right now I have to throw this in. It's almost organic. You know so much about the artists that it's almost effortless, Mm -hmm. to tell you the truth, weaving in the history along with the fiction. Uh, Both of the juvenile lead characters in your books deal with great personal tragedy. Mm. What made you decide to have your characters carry such burdens? I'm a teacher, as I've said, and through the years I've met a lot of students who are either dealing with tragedy or they have already dealt with tragedy. And it just blows me away the strength that's in these young people to just keep on keeping on. And, you know, it's a fact of our world that tragedy just doesn't happen to adults Uh, sadly, it happens to children as Mm -hmm. well. And I just wanted maybe to reach the readers out there who had gone through tough times themselves and to, you know, here's a character dealing with something that's maybe similar to what you dealt with. And, um, you know, it's painful, but he is surviving it. Mm. In both books, uh, the storyline takes us to Europe. Uh, we mentioned Duke Ellington in the late 1930s, just before the start of World War II, and again with, with Louis Armstrong in the 1960s. And during both time periods, the musicians and their bands are greeted with thousands of fans. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some people who don't realize just how popular jazz oh. was in Europe. Oh, it's the truth. It's the truth. Um, on that 39 tour of Sweden, every single train station had people with bonfires just waiting to see the Duke Ellington Orchestra's train go by. Mm-hmm. They weren't even stopping. They weren't playing a concert. They were just going by. Um, Our artists, people like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughan, John Coltrane, I could go on and on, Charles Mingus. I mean, in Europe, they are considered America's Bachs, Mm -hmm. America's Mozarts, America's Beethovens. Um, It's only in our own country where sometimes they're not treated with the respect they deserve. Although, with institutions like Jazz at Lincoln Center, uh, many other organizations like this, I think Americans are beginning to realize this isn't just fun music. It's music that we should be very, very proud of. Uh, although you don't use your books as part of your curriculum, there are other schools <laughs> that yeah, do. Yes. Uh, how do you use your books? Uh, and, and is this something you hoped for when you're writing down? I mean, does it surprise you that the, you, these other schools are going, whoa, let's put this in our curriculum? Yeah, um, it's it's what I dreamed of, to tell you the truth. I just came back from Minis- uh, Minneapolis, where I spoke to um, three different schools who are using Duke's Train, and they're thinking of using the Lewis. And I have to admit, even after 29 years in the classroom, I get a few butterflies, but mm-hmm. then I tell myself, you know, this is what you daydreamed about. Yeah. Just take a deep breath and go in. But I'm getting letters, too, from students around the country, um, New Orleans, California, New York. And what they're saying is pretty much the same thing. I'm now downloading Duke Ellington music into my iPod, or I'm now listening to Louis Armstrong or watching him on... Um, on YouTube, and that's music to my ears. Mm. Nat Hentoff, the great jazz critic and writer who's uh, 87 years old, still alive in um, Greenwich Village, still writing his righteous column every week for the Village uh, Voice, he said it best. He said, once you begin listening to jazz, you can't get enough of it. Mm. The more jazz you listen to, the more jazz you want to listen to. So if I can open up young people's ears and minds to this great music, make them realize you don't need a PhD to um, listen to it or enjoy it, just an open mind and an open pair of ears, then I'd have done a great service, I think. Now, we said this is aimed at young readers. I have to say, I read both the books, and, and, and and I know my producer, Amy, read both the books, and we both thoroughly enjoyed 
kids, and, and, and we're not that young. <laughs> um, but what, what were you aiming that at? Who were you thinking of when you were? What age group were you thinking? I, I didn't want to dumb down the writing, which at is probably all. why we enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I, I did not want to do that. Um, that's a very good question. To tell you the truth, I was aiming it at anyone who could enjoy, um, hopefully, a good story. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aiming it at a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old. I just wanted to aim it to someone with an open mind who might enjoy, um, hopefully, an interesting story and maybe someone who's looking for a, a new avenue of music to explore. Right. Now, in Travels with Lewis, the young protagonist takes trumpet lessons mm. uh, from, from Louis, and he is a gifted player, but he has a bit of stage fright. Yes. He finally works up the courage to play with the band, and the piece he performs is uh, is Stutton with some barbecue. Yeah. Um, and and tell us a little bit about uh, this piece for young Fred to play, and and about that stage fright because I think that's probably a common. With one of the big, when they say, "What are people afraid of?" One of the biggest oh, fears yeah. is, you know, speaking in public or imagine yep. playing in public. I'm convinced there are thousands of talented, gifted artists out there, performing artists, sitting on the couch watching television. They have the talent, but they just didn't have the guts it takes to get out there and, you know, expose yourself in a way. Um, the thing about strutting with some barbecue is, um, like all jazz, it allows room for improvisation, which is very difficult. Wynton Marsalis is the only artist who has won um, Grammys for his classical trumpet playing as well as his jazz trumpet playing. And he was asked once, what's more difficult? And he looked at the interviewer as if the interviewer was crazy. He hmm. said, are you kidding? Classical music has been written down for hundreds of years. There it is. It doesn't vary. Uh, if you learn it once, you can play it forever. Jazz is like walking a tightrope. If your brain stops creating for even a microsecond, it all falls apart. Mm. So the thing with um, little Fred is I didn't want to make it too easy. He has a huge, huge meltdown the first time he plays on stage in front of an audience, um, which I felt was um, true to life. Mm-hmm. A lot of people fail and a lot of people feel like giving up. And he almost does give up, but he finds it within him to keep on keeping on. Right. And that whole improv thing, I mean, that and that's something that we see in both books is like with Duke giving each of the uh, musicians their time to shine, their mm-hmm. time to sort of put their personality into to whatever the piece is or the music, the instrument that they're playing. And Duke even talks about writing it that way. He writes like yep. he says when he writes, you know, uh, a piece for for, uh, you know, whatever instrument it's playing. He's not writing for anybody's instrument. He's writing for a particular person yep. in his band. Yep. For Johnny Hodges, alto right, saxophone exactly. or Cootie Williams's trumpet. You know, and people asked me too well Duke is a composer he composed over 2,000 pieces of music how does that jibe with the improvisational nature of jazz well Duke would compose his music but he left room within mm-hmm. the composition for his individual musicians to have their say right. we should talk about Fred's dad for a second mm. um, uh, Fred's dad is a really good dad isn't he and but his dad wasn't such a good dad yes. yep. <laughs> and there's another here's another lesson now we've got the history lessons we've got the parenting lessons here um, there are a lot of different messages that you're you're trying to send to the the kids who are reading these and books. And I'm trying not to put it in the book in a pretentious way no, either, no, but hopefully yeah. an organic yeah. way. Um, you know, you read articles of people who were abused and then they go on to be abusers. And, you know, I was just lucky. I was born to loving parents. But I think to myself, there's got to be people out there who know the pain of dealing with, uh, you know, an abusive parent mm-hmm. and they make up their minds never to be that way. And that's 
the way I see Big Fred, Little mm-hmm. Fred, the protagonist's father. He had a father who, um, this is how they got to know Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. His father was a musician in New Orleans, a boyhood friend of, of Louis. And he just wasn't there for his son due to a drinking problem mm-hmm. and a partying problem. And here's this good man already dealing with the death of his wife who's made up his mind that, no, I am going to be the best father for my son I can be. And I think that's just as real as the mm-hmm. stories we hear about abusive parents. Right. Incredibly brave, courageous, um, loving people who every day fight a battle to be there for their mm-hmm. kids and right. to be the best parent they can be. And again, Fred finds out that his grandfather died from alcoholism. Yeah. And another message there. So then another learning lesson that we have. In and, it. and you know, the father's name um, was Henry, I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm asking about my own book. But um, Big Fred has decided I'm not going to allow alcohol to control my life and yeah. he doesn't drink at all. So right. just a little subtle message right. that uh, you don't hammer at home. No, not but, at all. That's no. what I mean. It is very subtle. But that's what I'm saying. There's, it's so much more than just the music. The music obviously is sort of front and center, but there's, there's a lot of life lessons in, in both of these books. You know, as 29 years as a public school teacher, um, I've seen and heard some horror stories, some of my students who I admire so much, and it's made me realize how fortunate I was in my own childhood. Yeah. So what's next? Are you going to continue in this series? Um, You know, sometimes they tell you your dreams can come true. Um, Both books have been adopted by Jazz at Lincoln Center, Mm -hmm. and they're buying many copies for, um, you know, poor school districts Mm -hmm. around the country. And because of them and because of a great publishing company, Leapfrog Press, I have carte blanche to keep on writing Mm -hmm. these jazz novels until the day I kick the bucket. Yeah. And, um, you know, a a question I was thinking as I was reading them, um, you are really looking at these lives through the eyes of a of a black American, mm. and you are not a no, black I, man. You I are glow a white in the dark man. on the beach, but but <laughs> you really bring us there. You really bring us to to what it what it must be like, what they're experiencing. Where did that come from? Um, I think it came from a childhood in um, New Rochelle, New York. It came from um, talking to friends honestly about their experiences, and um, and again, just through the imagination mm-hmm. of um, you know being a writer. You know, Ernest Hemingway was never stranded at sea as right. a fisherman, <laughs> and yet the old man in the sea makes you feel like you were there. We're there yeah, I think from talking to friends, um, reading, and just my imagination. Exactly. Well, the books are great. Mick Carlin, his uh, latest book is Travels with Lewis, and. And uh, we're going to hear a little uh, Louis Armstrong on our way out, or Louis Armstrong as he likes to be uh, That's called. That's why in um, in Hello, Dolly, he says, this is Louis Dolly. <laughs> he makes it clear, call me Louis. He did not like Louis. Oh, isn't that yeah. funny? We're hearing a little strutting with some barbecue. Thanks so much for being here with Thank us. Thank you, Mindy. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.